Welcome to Eastridge Today with Steve Jameson, lead pastor of Eastridge Church in Issaquah and West Seattle. We invite you to worship with us at EastridgetodayRadio.com or in person every weekend. Today, we'll hear a powerful message from our youth pastor, Josh Jameson. This is what the Apostle Paul says, chapter 1, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Watch this. And we are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with one another, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You know, today, as we're gonna take some time to better understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here, my hope and prayer for each and every one of us today would be this, that we would walk out of here with a better understanding of what biblical community actually looks like, that we would have a clearer picture of what God is calling us to be as the church, and that we would be able to identify some of the hurdles and obstacles that maybe stand in the way from us being able to engage and connect in the way that God has created and designed for us to engage and connect with one another and to be one body, unified, one heart, one voice, one mind, one spirit, moving together as a family. So today, if you're taking notes, the title for today's message is this, a piece or the puzzle? A piece or the puzzle. Write that down. That's going to be important to us as we move on today. I want to give you this thought. Not everything that is Christian is biblical. Not everything that is Christian is biblical. You might hear that and go, wow, time out. What, what are you getting at here? Okay, let, let me better explain what I'm, what I'm really trying to say. Much of what you see lived out, specifically, let's just talk within the context of the American church and American Christianity today, is more of a cultural interpretation of Christianity than it is an accurate biblical representation of Christianity. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. Many of you see it, sense it, and experience it for yourself. But let's put some teeth to this statement. Uh, just last year, uh, the Cultural Research Center of Arizona uh, Christian University, headed up by a guy, by the way, named George Barna. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Barna Research Institute. Uh, George Barna started the, the Barna Research Institute. It's the largest Christian research organization in the world. George Barna partnered uh, with the, the Cultural Research Center with a project they deemed uh, with the purpose of trying to better understand 
Christianity in America today. So this study just came out, data from 2021, and uh, they were looking to better understand not only what Christianity in America today means, but also how many people who profess to be Christians actually live with a biblical worldview. It's a good question. Here's some of the data they found. You ready for me to share some, some data with you? Here we go. Here's what they found. This shocked me. Seven in 10 adults in America, 69% to be exact, have adopted the label Christian to identify their faith. 69% of adults in America, when asked, would identify themselves as being Christian. Does that number seem high to you? It felt high when I read it. But as you get into the data, it starts to, to make more sense because while 69% of adults in America would claim to be Christian, you know what they found out of that pool of people who identify as being Christians, us included? Only 6% held what they called a biblical worldview. Now let's talk about what that actually means. Watch this. 71% of American Christians consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted source for moral guidance. So let's just let that sink in for a moment. 71% of people who say in America, I am a Christian, would also say, I trust my feelings, I trust my experiences, I trust my friends, and I trust my family more than I trust scripture. That's just the first step. 66% of American Christians would say, having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Partnered with that, 64% of American Christians say, all religious faiths are of equal value. Anyone see a concerning trend here? 64% of American Christians would say it doesn't matter if you're Christian or if you're Buddhist or if you're Muslim or if you're Mormon. All roads lead to the same place. Okay. 58% of American Christians believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way to heaven. 58% of American Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 57% of American Christians believe in karma. This is depressing because less than half of American Christians, 46% believe that marriage between one man and one woman is God's plan for humanity. Less than half. Last one. 52% of American Christians claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual, that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone. Can I start with our opening statement again? That not everything that is Christian is biblical. You see, when you look around at the state of Christianity in America, what we find is we find a cultural interpretation of the faith instead of really diving into what a biblical walk with Jesus should look like. So I, I read these stats and they kind of slap you in the, in the face, don't they? It stings a little bit when you read them because when you read some of these stats, if you're anything like me, I go, how do we get here? How, how can you call yourself a Christian and say 64% of us say that, man, it doesn't matter what religion you have. As long as you got faith, you're going to wind up in the same place. 
Because can I tell you where we're getting these answers? It's not from scripture. Bible's really clear on pretty much every one of these stats that we just talked about, right? So if we're not getting our theological beliefs from the Bible, where are we getting them from? We're getting them from culture. So how do we, as, how did we get here? Really, the, I think if you look at it, a big piece of it is the trend to, towards cultural individuality, the rise of individuality within our society today. You see, over the last few decades, you may have sensed and felt this, but we have slid away from our moral and ethical foundations. And we have come to a place as a society that we say the individual feelings, thoughts, desires that you have are more important than anything else. There is no absolute truth. There is only your truth. If I were to put it another way, I would say it like this. As a culture, we now believe that what feels good to the person is more important than what is good for the people. Have you seen that, right? There are things that we know are bad for the masses, but because a few have feelings, well, then we gotta go along with it. Because we live in a culture that worships individuality. And when you live in a culture that worships individuality, you come to a place where you will believe it is wrong to tell anybody that they are wrong. We live in a culture today that says you can't tell someone that what they feel is wrong, what they think is wrong, what they do is wrong. Why? Because when you live in a culture that worships individuality, the individual is always correct. The individual wants, desires, feelings, they will always be the most important thing. Can I tell you, many of the statistics we read a moment ago are a byproduct of individuality working its way into the Christian faith. Let me, let me better explain. Why, how do you get to a place where 64% of Christian Americans believe that all faiths are equal? Easy, you get to a place like that when you allow individualism to guide your faith because when individualism guides your faith, you see Jesus as someone who exists to serve you and not the other way around. When you allow individualism to guide and drive your faith, you will see the scripture as something that you will cherry pick to affirm the life you want to live instead of seeing scripture as the, the foundation by which you conform and bring your life into alignment to what is inside of the book. We've got it backwards. Because when the individual is God, Jesus can't be God also. When we worship ourselves, we cannot also worship Jesus. And so we've got some things backward and we have to be willing to admit that there are places where we have forced Jesus and his word to conform to our lifestyle instead of allowing our life to conform to Jesus and his word. So it's important for us to ask even before we go any further today, are there places in our faith where we are conforming Christ and his word to fit our Pacific Northwest lifestyle? Are there places where we conform our beliefs to fit the life we wanna live as a soccer parent or a Microsoft employee or a tech developer, or maybe just somebody who's living in a very dark and liberal place in, in the country? Can I tell you there are scriptures that we ignore, that we bend, that we even break because we wanna live a Christianity that's a little more palatable to our lifestyle and maybe a little bit easier for our culture to digest. And what happens is we begin to actually live out a faith that is more cultural than it is Christian. 
And what happens is when we pick up here in Philippians chapter one, we find that the apostle Paul is actually having to correct, rebuke, and address cultural Christianity that has slid into the church in Philippi. Because what's happening here is Philippi was a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, uh, the, the region of Philippi, the colony of Philippi actually became an urban hub for its area. It was a melting pot of commerce and culture and spirituality. And inside of this melting pot, the church in Philippi began to, it began to exhibit synchronistic behaviors and ideals. What does that mean? They wanted to worship Jesus and they wanted to worship the emperor. That was a big part of Roman culture that you actually worshiped the emperor. So what was going on in the church in Philippi? They would show up to read scripture and they would pray together on Sunday. And then on Friday night, they'd be out with their Roman buddies and they'd be kicking it in town and they'd be going to worship the emperor and doing all the cultural things because they wanted to have one foot in culture and one foot with Christ. They wanted to pray to Jesus on Sunday, but then they also wanted to pray to the Egyptian gods of Isseus and Serpius on Monday and Tuesday. What, did, what were they doing? They were cherry picking. Well, we're gonna take a little bit of this Jesus thing. We're gonna take a little bit of Roman culture. We're gonna sprinkle in a little bit of yoga and we'll call it Christianity. Does it sound a little bit like the east side of Seattle? We're very spiritual people, but we're not a very Christ-like people where we will take the little bits and pieces that match the way we want to live, that feel palatable to our cultural lifestyle, that fit in with our friends in our workplace. And we meld it together with ideas and ideologies that are found nowhere in the Bible. And what we'll do from time to time is this, we'll pull one piece of scripture out of context and use it as our argument for why we wanna live the way we wanna live. And that's, that's fine, but I just wanna ask you a question. Now that you've taken that one scripture out of context and you've twisted and manipulated it to mean something it doesn't mean, does it also match the other 40 verses that you just ignored to pull that one piece out of context? Because you cannot just pull one verse out and make it mean what you want. You have to pull scripture out and ask the question, what does it actually mean? And is the interpretation of what I'm pulling from it match the whole of scripture? Because the Bible does not contradict itself. And so we gotta be careful that we are people that do not even make cultural readings of the Bible, but that we make actual biblical interpretations and readings of scripture. So here the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's having to correct the idol of individuality that I'm gonna live my faith the way I want. And here's how he corrects it. You still with me? Philippians 1:27. he says this, above all, the original language would have been something like, don't forget this. This is the most important thing. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. You must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. See, everything else Paul's going to write in the next few verses hinge upon and are built upon these two concepts, that you are a citizen of heaven and that there is a call and a mandate on your life to live in such a way, to conduct yourselves in such a manner that it is worthy of the good news. You're a citizen of heaven. Listen to this. This concept is important. Why? Because as a citizen of heaven, it means you're a part of something bigger than yourself. 
Notice how he calls them citizens of heaven, not the king of heaven. There's only one king in this kingdom and it's Jesus. And what that means is if I'm a citizen, I don't make the rules, but I'm expected to live by them. I don't create the boundaries, but I get to live within them. As a citizen, I am not the whole, but I am a part. I belong to a community, a family. Paul would even go on later to call this the body of Christ, the church. And as a member of this community, as a member of this body, I have responsibilities and obligations. Why? Because my life affects more people than just myself. Now this language would have stopped the Philippian readers in their tracks. Why? Because one of the single most important things to them that they wrapped their identity in, that they touted and celebrated more than anything was that they were citizens of Rome. They were a Roman colony. And this was important because it meant that they had Roman protection, that they had Roman privilege and that they lived under Roman law. This was something not only that they felt like, <clears throat> pretty special, but that they actually wrapped so much of their identity and their world in that they made it one of the single most important aspects of their life. And what does Paul say here? He says, above everything else, you are a citizen of heaven. What does that mean? Above anything Rome has to offer you, God has something better for your life. Above anything that you've wrapped your identity in, you will find more fulfillment in who you are in Christ than who you are in the culture. And he begins to correct this wrong idea in their heart that the best thing that they could have is what the world had to offer. That they could wrap their identity in the things of the earth and the things of the flesh. And he's going, no, 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 no. There's something bigger that you're a part of. You're not just a part of a colony in Rome, but you're a part of a colony of heaven here on earth. What is the church? While we are sucking air and breathing here on this planet, the church is a heavenly colony on the planet earth. A place where we don't live under just earthly law with earthly benefits, but a place where we gather together under heavenly rule and with heavenly benefits. We are a part of a citizenship that is greater than your passport, that is greater than your birth certificate. It's stamped in the blood of Jesus when we give our lives to him. We're a part of something significant, church. And it's important for us to understand. I thank you for those three people who clapped in the back. You're a part of something. And I gotta ask you, are there things in our life that we find more identity and fulfillment that we are chasing after more than who we are in Christ Jesus? Are there things that we're more proud to be a part of and associate with than we are proud to be a part of the church? You know, our, our boys, they play sports. We live out in the Snoqualmie Valley School District. And so we're, we're technically Mount Si Wildcats, you know, and even their sports teams are all Wildcats, everything. And man, I love, I love repping the gear. I love wearing the hats. I love wearing the, the sweatshirts and the jackets. I love people knowing that we're a part of this community, that our kids are a part of this community. Can I tell you, we should be so much more proud to wear the, the stamp that we're a part of the church than a part of anything else in our life. Man, if you're willing to, to rock the select sports teams that your kids play for, how much more should we be willing to rep the badge that we are Christians, that we are citizens of heaven, that we're a part of a family and a community that is so much greater than anything this life has to offer. This faith isn't about you. This is what Paul's trying to tell him. It's not about you. You're a part of something so much bigger. And because of this citizenship you have in heaven, we need to think and live differently. 
And he follows up that statement about being a citizen of heaven with this idea that you must conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the good news. You ever come across a verse in scripture that kind of just like puts the fear of God in you? Like I read, I read that, you know, I've read it before, but there's moments you read that and you go, man, am I living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Ooh, that's a big idea, right? Before you can understand what it means to live worthy of the good news, it's important for us to understand what the good news is. Um, I just want you to think for a moment, how would you define good news? And more specifically, the good news, you know, like the gospel of Jesus, how would you, how would you articulate that? If we were to sit down for coffee and I were to ask you, what is the good news? How would you describe it to me? How would you summarize it? Um, just quick show of hands. How many of you would say the good news is that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for my sins? Yeah, that is an accurate articulation of the good news. However, it's an incomplete one. Notice how even the way we just identified with my articulation of the good news, it is an individualistic interpretation of the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came and died for me to forgive me of my sins. While every single piece of that statement is 100% completely true, it is a small portion of the bigger picture of what the good news really is. Because the, big new, the, the, the good news is huge. Let me just give us a, a biblical picture of what the good news is. And can I tell you, it's so good, it's gonna sound like a run-on sentence. What is the good news? The good news is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, not just so that we could be saved from our sins, but so that we could be saved into a family, a family that crosses generations, centuries and eras, a family that crosses borders, oceans and continents, a family whose purpose is not only to gather for 90 minutes on a weekend, but a family who gathers and goes to bring glory and worship to God and usher in his kingdom here on earth. And can I tell you, he is coming back again. And Jesus is not only gonna collect his church, but he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where he's gonna undo everything that sin has done to bring death and decay and destruction into this life. And we will stand together at the throne of Jesus singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty for all of eternity. That is good news. That's the good news. And the good news is bigger than me. And it's bigger than you. It's even bigger than us. Because the good news has welcomed us into a faith family of those who are dead, those who are alive, and those who are yet to be. We stand collected together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, linked together in the hall of faith, the, the great cloud of witnesses that the Bible describes, that we're a part of a family. So if that's the good news, how do you conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of that kind of good news? One of the most important things that Paul's gonna talk about as far as living a life that is worthy of the good news is that we would live a life unified as the church. 
How do we live that kind of life? By being a church that is a collection of people from different backgrounds and age groups and personalities, people with different gifts, talents, and preferences. Watch this, who lay it all down. That when we gather, we lay down our preferences, our wants, our needs, our desires to serve one another and to love one another, that we would walk in unity and harmony in a world that tells us to march to the beat of our own drum and to play our own song and to sing your own melody and to be your own person and to worship the individual. We bring glory and honor to God and live a life worthy of the good news when we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the kingdom of God. And we're willing to fight the good fight of faith for each other and standing alongside of each other, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, pushing back the kingdom of darkness everywhere we go. That is a kind of life that is worthy, that lives worthy of the good news of Jesus. Listen to how Paul describes this. Not my words, his. He says, live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the good news. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know, watch that you are standing together, one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith. Notice how he doesn't say fighting against each other. Fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. He says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're gonna be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past and you know I'm still a part of it. And is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort in his love, any fellowship together in the spirit Are your hearts tender and compassionate Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourself. He says this, don't look out for your own needs, for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. What kind of life are we called to live? a life together, a life in agreement, a life of unity, supporting one another, fighting for each other, not against each other, a life that is selfless, that takes interest in others. That's the kind of life that is worthy of the good news. But too often we allow this idol of individuality to creep into our faith and we make this journey of following Jesus all about me. We make it all about the piece and not the puzzle. Do you guys have that puzzle piece that you got when you, when you walked in? Go ahead and grab that puzzle piece for a moment. As you look at your puzzle piece, it's got unique color, design. There's some, some pieces that you look at. It's got unique shape. Did you know the, the puzzle piece you're holding in your hand right now is completely unique? There's not one other puzzle piece in the puzzle that's just like the one you have in your hand. It's one of one, right? It's, it's color is unique, it's design is unique, it's shape is unique. Just in the same way, every single one of us are completely unique. You are a one of one. Your personality, your characteristics, your design, uh, your shape, right? Color, like we're all completely unique. We're all by design individual. Now on its own, your puzzle piece is still really cool. It's beautiful. It's got things about it that, that really make it interesting. 
But what's important for you to understand is the truth is it only finds its place in the larger picture of the puzzle. And when the piece finds its place in the larger picture of the puzzle, its unique shape, its distinct color, and its individual properties fully come alive. That's about all the time we have for today. But if you want to listen to the whole thing, you can visit us at eastridgetodayradio.com and tune in next week for another installment of Eastridge Today.